0: It seems that the larger classes get, the more distant our students can seem. On today's episode, Dr. Chrissy Spencer helps us discover how to make a large class interactive. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I am thrilled today to welcome Dr. Chrissy Spencer to Teaching in Higher Ed. And Chrissy, I'm going to do a little bit on your bio, but also welcome you to contribute to whatever I leave out. But welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. You teach at Georgia Tech, and I know you teach principles of biology, ecology, genetics, evolution, genetics lab, and math models. One of the things you enjoy doing is co-teaching and applying interactive learning strategies in the classroom, many of which we're going to get a chance to talk to you about today. You teach undergraduate and graduate teaching assistants, the foundations of inquiry-based pedagogy. And you also, in your spare time, because that wasn't enough, (laughs) serve as the undergraduate advisor to a quarter of the biology majors at Georgia Tech, and you help them with their course selection, their academic success, strategies, and career advising. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. I thought one of the things we could start with would be I will play a couple of minutes of a video that, of course, we'll only on the show be able to hear the audio of, but this is from a video that for listeners, this will be posted in the show notes. And this is right on Chrissy's bio site. And it's about active learning in introductory biology. And it's just a fun way to get a sense of how you teach. And then of course, I'm going to have you talk a lot more about it. So this is active learning in introductory biology. And I will read the parts of the screen that we can't see that are just titles. Here we go. Teaching Evolution by Turning Students into Chili Peppers.
1: Teaching interactively in a large classroom can be a challenging
0: proposition. Faculty members in the School of Biology at Georgia Tech recently designed an activity for their introductory biology class, which this semester has over 200 students.
1: The idea of converting the student population in the room into a population of chili pepper plants. So if you had a red note card, then you were spicy, and if you had a yellow note card, then you were mild or sweet, in terms of your pepper phenotype. And then we ran a series of simulations that either simulated natural selection occurring in the population, or simulated genetic drift occurring in the population. These are two different microevolutionary processes, and natural selection We harp on a lot, we talk about a lot, it's a mechanism of evolution that students have probably seen before, but genetic drift is usually new to them, and it's a more random process that doesn't have to do with um, individual phenotypes being better fits to their environment after evolution occurs, and so we were trying to get students to understand the difference between these two things using random number generation and calling out random numbers for individuals that perished through the evolution event or survived.
0: What we're seeing now is a large classroom of students that are all standing up and they're holding up cards. They're holding up yellow cards, pink cards. I don't know, Chrissy, am I missing any colors? (laughs) Is it just two cards? No, that's the
2: only two in this exercise.
0: (laughs) Okay, and so some of them now have been asked to sit down by Chrissy, who's in the front. I love it because she, she. at the end, I'm not sure if listeners will be able to hear, but she said, if you're still standing, that means you made one chili pepper baby. I think that's what you said.
2: <laughs> I think that is what I said. Yes, I it's it. important that the chili peppers have to reproduce during this particular exercise, and it's not something we spend much time talking about, so I just make sure I say it in a very obvious way to the students.
0: So I remember from my undergraduate, and in fact, it was a biology class that I took, that was a large lecture. I didn't have a lot of large lecture classes in my undergraduate, but this is one that I vividly remember. And I can remember a sitting there and it's almost like if you could be asleep in one of those awfully uncomfortable desks where the chair is attached to the desk, <laughs> and then that's what people would yep. do. It wasn't interactive. So tell me, what would I see if I came into one of your classes out there in Georgia Tech? Because it looks very different.
2: It, it does, and the the interesting thing is that it starts in those same uncomfortable chairs with the with the bench, the, the desk attached <laughs> to the chair. We have a lot of lecture halls like that here. We have a lot of nice newer ones, too, that are more interactive. But regardless of which kind of space you walk into, um, in my classroom, I like to make sure that the students are kind of running the show in the sense that they're responsible for the learning, um, which means that my classroom looks like chaos to the casual observer. But there's actually a lot of really good stuff going on in there. So you might walk into my classroom and eventually figure out that there are 60 students in the room, but they're split up onto 10 different teams. Or there could be 200 students in the room, and they're split up into teams of 6 and 7 and 10, sizes like that. Um, And they're working on some task. So the task might be up on the overhead, presented on a PowerPoint that's projected on the screen. It might be something that they have access to from our course website, or through some sort of course question delivery system, like a clicker system, um, or a new system that we've just started using here called Learning Catalytics. But it, either way, or they could actually be working on a paper worksheet that we've handed out to them. Um, but the students are working through a series of problems or questions trying to, to get to the point that I'm trying to get them to understand and I'll stop and interrupt them um, to say, I've noticed a lot of teams are having trouble with a certain concept. So let me talk about that for a few minutes and kind of draw their attention back to the front and give a brief micro-teaching on some concepts that they're not quite nailing. Usually it's one that I'll know ahead of time they will not have been able to figure out. And so I have prepared for these moments. I'm really not just teaching on the fly. Sometimes I'll even have slides prepared to their immense surprise Um, Oh, that's what I didn't get. And she's got the slides right there on the screen. Um, And then I'll send them back into the activity to to finish it out and try to get to the end of it. I've
0: been reading a number of books lately, and we've talked about some of them on the show, that talk about the importance of allowing students to fail, or I'm talking small failures in this case, or allowing them (laughs) to struggle with an answer. And that actually, when they struggle... That's what creates that deeper sense of learning. So you talk about the interrupted case studies as so part of your interruptions. It sounds like are coming because they're struggling with some of these commonly, maybe common areas where they have misunderstandings. Um, are, are there other ways in which you interrupt case studies
2: to uh, absolutely? Bring that- so so the idea of an interrupted case study is actually um, a step more in the teaching teacher's direction. Uh, from the idea of the classroom that I just laid out in front of you. So an interrupted case study is traditionally a set of um, PowerPoint slides or um, written material where there are specific stopping points along the way. And when the class reaches one of those stopping points, then the instructor calls the class together and goes through material up to that point, kind of make sure everyone is at the same place they've all resolved part A of the case, and so that they have the information they need to move into part B. And that's really powerful because it, if you just turn students loose for 50 minutes or 80 minutes, the so, you know, typical class period, and can't keep an eye on them and kind of monitor progress, there will be groups that don't make any headway. They'll get stuck early and spin their wheels for quite a long time before you realize it, especially in a very large class. But if you have an inter- interrupted case study situation, Then every 10 minutes or so, you know, you call it, it could be every five minutes, you call them back together, you might give them a clicker question, and the whole class has to address the clicker question, and you can right away see, oh, 80% got it right, okay, we're doing pretty well, Um, have them talk to another group or talk to their neighbor about why they didn't choose that answer, and then from there, now knowing the right answer, they can move forward to the next part of the case.
0: I teach a lot of freshmen and I do this with case studies in there too. And and in fact they're they're also low stakes assignments, but there is a grade associated with their work on them. So it helps people get focused. But the other day I felt I felt good because they're they're with especially with the freshmen. I don't find it as much with the upper division classes that I teach, but especially with the freshmen, there's still that perceived distance that they need to maintain from the classroom and from the professor. And we're able to break the barriers, but they're still, for some of them, they're still, they're still kind of checking this whole college thing out and seeing what norms they want to maybe change from what they were used to in their high school experience. What about if there is a group that just is slower for whatever reason, even if they want to be doing well, but they're they're still struggling? Are there any techniques that you put into place
2: to try to help them bridge that gap? I'm lucky that I'm able to teach with TAs in the classroom. And so um, in a really large class, I I could be unlucky and only have one TA. I could be lucky and also have a co-instructor, so there's there's three of us in there. Um, But if I am lucky, then there might be two or three or four TAs even in the room helping kind of groups assess where they are and move forward. So we train our TAs to ask leading inquiry-based questions, not to answer the students' questions, but to see where they are and see what is the, where, where are they stuck, what's their stumbling block, and how can you push them past that to answer the question and move on. There And, and I'll be honest, there are groups that kind of never get past the first question, but when they figure out, the, not that they never get past it, but they don't get a whole lot past it because it takes them the whole class period to figure out the stumbling block of the first question. But when they figure it out, it's amazing. Like they get it, and they really get it. And so having spent all that time working on it, they've really cemented in at least one very important idea for the course. And so the goal then would be to have only four or five ideas in a lecture anyway, or a lecture period anyway, and so that those students, now that they've got the first idea, have the tools they need to go and figure out the rest of it kind of on their own, or to come to office hours, or to stay after and work with a TA during the TA's office hours to kind of figure out what's going on with that question. But it can be a problem. Another thing that you can run into when you have teams working in class is that you end up with a kind of dysfunctional team that there aren't any leaders, that none of them really want to be on the team, or there's some conflict between two individuals on the team. And those are things you have to deal with as well. And so learning those interpersonal skills of how to work in a situation that you're not really happy with and still be productive and get learning out of it at the end, which is the end product that we're going for on these teams is important. And so I train the TAs and I myself, I'm always looking for those teams that are not working well together and sit down and talk to them about what's preventing them from being able to complete the exercise and what could they, what, what kinds of behaviors are they bringing to their team that are actually obstructing the team moving forward at all.
0: So speaking of teams, what are some different ways in which you select teams for these groups?
2: There's so many ways to do teams. And I have a few favorites. There's my absolute go-to, especially in a very large class, is called the CATME Team Maker. And CATME is spelled C-A-T-M-E. This team maker is at CATME.org. And it's part of a collaborative project from a group of faculty from all sorts of schools in the U.S. Um, And they, it's a, it's a website basically where you can go and upload your student roster into a FERPA-protected project basically. And then your students can then complete a survey. And the survey questions include what their schedule is, what their leadership, leadership style preference is, what their personal leadership style is, um, what their dedication to whatever project you're going to have them work on on the team is. Um, and a whole series of other questions. And you can even include personalized questions like what grade did you make in the prerequisite to the course that we're taking now? Or which courses have you already had so that you can gain some knowledge of what their expertise might be? And then CATME, once the students have all put their information into the system, CATME just goes in with an algorithm where you select what's important to group together, things that you want to be like on a team and things that you want to be unlike. So, you might, for instance, want to have teams that are, well, where, where all the students have the same level of dedication to the project. Or you might want to have teams where all the students are going to be free at the same times after class to work together on the project. And you can prioritize what's important to you in terms of a uh, sliding scale for all those different categories that they've put their data in for. And then you just hit Team Maker and go away for a few minutes. And so when you come back, it's built a whole bunch of teams. You can specify the size of team you want, et cetera. Then you can flip through and visually say, oh, that team's not going to work because of a personality conflict or whatever else you may already know about the students. Or in a really big class where it's a bunch of first-year students, you can just go, well, great, it built me some teams. And you tell CAPME to release the team information to the students, and it tells them who's on their team, and sends out the email addresses to the students for those teams. So it's pretty powerful. It's paired with a very nice peer evaluation system as well. So once you've run your team project, You can have the students complete a peer evaluation, and in there, CATME will go back in and tell each student, if you release the data in this way, it'll tell each student their perceived contribution to the team. So it might tell a student that you're overconfident. You really think you're doing a great job on this team, but your teammates are a little bit frustrated with you, and so you might need to reassess how you're contributing to the team. Or that you're underconfident, that you're doing a super job according to your teammates, but you have underrated yourself. And that's a really valuable thing to hear, especially in a large class where they're not going to get that from the instructor or someone else who's watching the process. One of the things
0: that I use in creating teams too is a team charter so they can walk through the conversation. It looks like they have a team charter and some support tools for their meetings to teach them really how do you have a meeting, how do you create an agenda, how do you have minutes. It just looks like such a powerful set of tools. I've never even heard of it before our conversation today. So I'm excited to dive in and see how it might benefit my teaching. And I know yes, that listeners will try too. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes for anyone listening that wants to learn more about it. Let's talk a little bit about your switching from clickers, which for anyone listening who doesn't know what a clicker is, that would be a hardware device about the size of a credit card they've come down to now, although much thicker. A lot of us, myself very much included, had had purchased these clickers and had the hardware device. And now things are really switching. And I know you recently made a switch. Tell us about your switch from clickers
2: to the learning catalytics. It's a very nice platform, though. So this is um, an online system that gives you the ability to ask a multiple choice question or a numeric based question, just like most clicker systems do. Um, But it has, in addition to that, 17 other question types, including short and long answers, a free response, basically, question types. And also the thing I love about it is it allows students to sketch and work with diagrams. So you can upload an image and have the student say what direction the effect is going to occur in or sketch the relationship they expect to see based on their hypothesis once they run the experiment Hmm. or I mean, just it's, or, or say where on the diagram, just like point to this place on the diagram where the system goes to equilibrium or where, you know, what represents a certain combination of things. So it means that, especially in the sciences, it, it allows you to really see whether students are interpreting a data set correctly into a figure or if they can read a figure to understand what it actually means or predicts about the system that it's depicting. And those are both very important things to assess in the sciences, and they're hard to assess unless you have students draw figures and, and then you know, grade lots and lots and lots of papers. So there's an online way to do that, which I really have enjoyed. Um, I had an experience last spring where learning catalytics had just been introduced into our introductory biology series. We, there's a whole group of faculty at Georgia Tech that teach introductory biology with two different courses in the series. And we make decisions as a group about how the grading structure is going to work, what kind of clicker system or other thing we're going to use. And we had just decided to use learning catalytics as a group. So it was my first time teaching with it. And at the same time, I was teaching an upper-level course for the first time with a new instructor. To a new instructor to tech. And I thought, well, let's go slow. We'll, we'll do clickers with this because I think that it's really good as a new, a new faculty member to be introduced to clickers. And so at the same time, I was teaching with both of these technologies and I was so frustrated by the clickers, even though I'd never used learning catalytics before and I had always used clickers. They, they were so inflexible. The kinds of questions I had to write were so inflexible for that upper-level course relative to what I was all of a sudden able to do in my intro course. You could ask all sorts of higher-order cognitive skills kinds of questions and think about applying and evaluating things. And, and I'd always tried to write clicker questions like that, but they're hard to write. And so I was finding myself in this upper-level course of trying to write these really hard, not hard for the students, but conceptually difficult for me to frame, questions that really got at some sort of higher-order skill, higher-order thinking. And I could have just asked an open-ended question if I had opted for learning catalytics in that. Yeah,
0: my cl- my clickers are collecting dust, as I said, but, but for now, listeners might remember, I use a tool called Poll Everywhere. But so far, I've been using the free version, which, which lets you have up to 40 responses per poll, so as in a class size of no more than 40 on their free plan. But I've thought about switching it over to the paid plans, and you can shift the cost to the students. It's not that expensive. It looks similar to the learning catalytics there, I think, maybe... for a semester and $20 for a full year from Learning Catalytics, if I'm remembering correctly off their website, I'll link to that, the pricing. And then I've been with Poll Everywhere, I think it's $14 a year for students to shift the cost over to them. And of course, one of the real advantages from the clickers that are gathering dust is I used to program in the names of the students and i loved it because if the students got a lot of questions right during a session at the end i could choose to have their name show up on the screen or i could choose oh, to divide them into teams and then it could be that the team that did the best could have their team and this this of course creates a great sense of camaraderie if they're in teams or a sense of pride if they're getting things correct you also could have for a particular question whoever answered it correctly the fastest would have their name show up on the screen too and they loved that and that is one of the things with the free version of poll everywhere i'm not getting and so but one of the things i like about whether it's clickers or whether it's it's the anonymous poll everywhere i don't know who's answering how Um, those questions. But I do like the fact that no one ever has to be shamed if they got the answer wrong. So speaking of low stakes, I I really encourage them, you know, don't tell your your friends sitting next to you what the answer is. You're not helping them because if they get it wrong, that's actually going to help cement the answer when they learn what the right answer is. And they generally go along with me on that. But I do I do wonder for you, because you you do know who's answering which questions, right? So that's, that's something that's programmed in and is the, does their name ever show up on the screen for any positive reason or is that built into the system at all
2: At this point that is not built into the learning catalytic system mm-hmm. um, it's for especially for the from the for the student end of things everything remains very anonymous so they never they I can show the students a histogram of the result if it's a multiple choice question for instance but there's no names attached with that Got it, um, Got it. Yeah, I, at this point, that's not something they've focused on. It's a neat idea to go through and, and be able to reward um, students or groups that are doing well. And I have seen that in clicker systems before too. But that's not something they've invested in just yet. One thing that's nice about learning catalytics is that the online faculty support community is really interactive, and so um, they're constantly seeking requests. So what you know, what what do faculty want to see? And when you go in to put in a request, you can search and see, is my request already in the system? And if it's not, you add it. And then when you add a request, you get a set of votes. And you can cast some number of votes towards your own idea that you just put forward and then see what other things are out there and place your votes how you will. And then as their tech team has time to add um, new ideas into or new programming into the system, they go through and prioritize what faculty have said they want to see and see how, how implementable would this be. And if, it's a, if they're able to do it, then they do it. And So they prioritize that stuff.
0: That kind of transparency around help desk support is so great. And then you can find out what's coming and they can know what's important to you too. Tell me what's been going on in your teaching with the flipped classroom. I know you made some changes there recently and have some learnings to share with us around the flipped classroom.
2: Yeah, I, you know that that term gets bandied around so much, and it means so many different things. So I'll tell you how I use how I use flipped. Um, I don't build outside of class video material myself. At least I haven't taken the time to do that yet. Um, but I do hunt around for open access material, especially on YouTube and especially on Khan Academy. It's been a very good resource for me to to find short videos that explain certain concepts to students so that they have access to that in case I'm not going to lecture on it. Um, What I have done is try to just really reinforce that reading ahead and reading the textbook in a specific way, not just from start to finish like a novel, Mm -hmm. um, is, is the right way to prepare for class and so that when you do come to class we can do more interesting things and not just have me tell you what you know, out loud, what you could just read for yourself in the textbook. Um, so, so my flipped classroom has been a little more amorphous, I think, than some others, but it has allowed me to really use the in-class time um, in interesting ways. And so that's where I bring in the, um, at the very basic level, the clicker case, where there's a, a case study that we work through, and I just stop with clicker questions which I guess have now become learning catalytics questions, I call them clicker questions though, and uh, stop and interrupt the students and, and just check in with how they're doing on the case. Other things I have learned in flipping my ecology class this semester, um, I did a lot of things at once. Um, I decided to go, I, I, I well, <laughs> let me back up. Right before the semester started, our Center for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning um, did a pair of workshops on a process called team-based learning, which is a very specific kind of team learning where all of the learning in the classroom happens while students are on a team. It all happens in the team, so very little, and every once in a while the instructor will stop and give a quick input on stuff. And, and that includes even things like the testing in the classroom, it has an individual component and a team component. And so I, I was so inspired by this workshop that I saw the week before classes started that I just decided I've got to do this. And so I bought the book. There's a book on it. I read most of the book. I <laughs> should have read the whole book before I started on this. And um, I took what I could from it, given that my syllabus was built and that I had a co-instructor who was already on board for the course, and I just decided I'm just going to try this. And so I kind of halfway tried team-based learning in my class this fall, in my flipped classroom this fall. And um, I, I think I learned from that that this in particular, this thing called team-based learning is not something you should do halfway. There's uh, things I had to leave out for various reasons. One was the way that the readings were structured in the course. Um, another was the fact that I had someone else teaching half the course with me. I, I just I had to skip over some stuff that I think would have been pretty important to include. and so. The net result was that because I didn't do all the techniques of team based learning, my students didn't gain what they could have.
0: Mm. They gained a
2: bit, but I think they could have gone miles further with the material. They always had me to fall back on instead of knowing that they had to learn it themselves. And I think that was where I missed out <laughs> in applying team based learning this fall. Well. So, this takes me to my most important lesson learned that I always forget. Um, Or ignore. I think I actually ignore it more than I forget it. And that is this. (laughs) Start small and do things in a small and measured way instead of taking every idea that you've got and trying to apply it all in a single course or in a single semester.
0: That is so important. (laughs) that's my
2: tip for you. <laughs> I love it. I
0: well, I do that in, in one way because I get so excited about educational technology, but I will not let myself in the middle of a semester when I come across something that just sounds so great, I will say, okay, I have a list. I keep it in Evernote and I have my list mm-hmm. of things I might want to check out. And then every semester I let myself pick one of them. And of course, well before the semester starts, I think, how am I going to use this? And like you say, how will I measure the effectiveness of it? And if I can, I'll get someone else to kind of team up with me right now. I have a, a colleague, she wanted me to go try out a new clicker system, not a clicker, but like learning catalytics. I think it's called Top Hat. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And mm-hmm. I said, this looks amazing. It looks like a fabulous system. It, it looks great. Not going to do it yet because I'd already put all this time in the learning poll everywhere. I've got a lot of questions in there. I know what works and what doesn't work about that tool. And it's just, it wasn't worth it to me to make that change. So I have to kind of, like you said, start small and then have those measured changes and just do those incremental things as we go and using keeping what works and then and then adding things in to what doesn't work. So the last thing I want to make sure that we talk about because I don't want to miss this subject is something you said you've been thinking a lot about and working on and that's service learning projects in the large lecture classes. Tell us about that, please.
2: Well, service learning is so interesting, right? It's a way that students could apply learning from a content area to the real world, um, and also give back to the community or to some, some partner in the community in some way. Um, and so in biology, I, I started thinking at the beginning of the semester, from when I started thinking about what are my projects going to be, I thought, well, in biology, the learning needs to be, on a project, needs to be related to the scientific method. So students need to you know, understand a system, generate a hypothesis in a system, design an experiment to test their hypothesis, run the experiment and gather the data and then analyze the data to determine whether or not they support the hypothesis or not. That is the scientific method. And I wanted, I I was just struggling with myself to figure out how could I make that into service learning to also have a service component to give back some information to project partners in our community. So I identified a group of project partners that all have... Um, urban sites, and um, I should tell you, Georgia Tech is located in the middle of the city of Atlanta, which is a rather large and sprawling urban district in the southeast, and so it's, it's a tough place to teach ecology in some ways, since there's not a lot of natural setting left in the middle of the city, but we do have a very beautiful city with lots of trees, lots of parks, and some new corridors that are being developed, such as the Atlanta Beltline Corridor, um, which provides trails have lots of um, nature along them, some of which is recently restored. So I partnered with some groups along the Atlanta Beltline um, and with some groups on campus to put together specific projects that would allow students to collect data and turn the report back over to the partner. My, I had three objectives in mind. One of those objectives was that the students would be outside in the field doing field ecology work of some sort which I think they probably never would have thought they would have been doing in the middle of Atlanta. Um, and then I wanted to make sure they were collecting data, and I wanted to make sure that they were going to be able to return some sort of deliverable back to the organization that was going to help that organization think about science and mm-hmm. think about their end product, whatever their end product was. Um, it's been so fun. And I I was very nervous at first that my students were not going to want to get off campus. So I decided designed half the projects to actually be on campus in case that was... Well, not just in case, but in case there were students that really couldn't get off campus. But I was able, using CATME, the, the team maker tool, to determine who had cars and who would be able to be on campus and who would be able to, to drive off campus, um, and to put together groups of students that wanted to work on specific topics and projects. And I had students come out of the woodwork saying, I want to do, I, I have to do this project. And I'd think, well, there's only... You know, I can only have five or six students doing each project. So if everyone says they have to do a certain project, I'm going to be in so much trouble. <laughs> but it worked out. I know. It, the balance was perfect. I, had, I mean, there were certainly project topics that were more popular, and a lot of students got their third choice, which I felt kind of bad about. Um, but everybody got one of their top three choices, hmm. um, and they're doing such interesting projects. And I've had so many conversations of great enthusiasm with students from a population that I never, they never really espouse interest in ecology when they come. They, they want, many of them want to go to medical school. They're really interested in the genetics work that, and t- subjects that we teach, um, in the cell biology subjects that we teach in the chemistry. And, and so getting them interested in ecology is super important to me. And this seems to be working, but it's a work in progress. Um, their projects are about halfway done at this point. Being in the South, um, we're now We're now hitting fall pretty hard, but we had a nice long late summer this year, so they've been able to be out in the field. It's been a beautiful fall, working outside, hasn't been too rainy, hasn't been too cold yet, and I'm really hopeful that in the next few weeks we're going to have a really nice set of data sets to look at and give information back to these different community partners.
0: That is such an inspiring story. And it really gets me thinking about ways I might be able to do that in an entirely different field. So thank you so much. So this is the point in the show in which we each give a recommendation. And I will start because I'm excited to have yours sort of be what we close. with. <laughs> and I'm going to just share briefly, it's that time in the semester where a lot of us that are on semester systems are experiencing what I have I'm sure I'm not the first person to call it this, but I have called it the dip where (laughs) there's just the lower motivation levels with our students. And some time ago, I actually applied this pattern that I saw throughout most of my semesters of teaching to a team model by Tuckman and Jensen. And so they talk about teams form and then they go through storming and they go through norming, performing and adjourning. A guy had actually commented on this blog post I wrote some time ago saying that he had written about the same subject. He's from the UK. I'm going to link to both of these posts in the show notes. And it was so great to see someone from all the way in another country who had experienced these same patterns and had looked at it in both a similar and a different way. And to me, they're just inspiring to look back. And he says that these are a list, he calls them a list of things to look out for if they happen. It's not like don't have it become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't always have to necessarily go through that. But I have seen just we do go through the season during different parts of the semester where it's a little bit just lower motivation and start to have some more transactional conversations with students. And it's just kind of helpful to know that it happens and you'll get out of it. And there's some techniques you can use to try to break free from it. And, and anyway, it's been helpful to me just to think about. And it was nice to go back and revisit this semester too. So what is your recommendation for the listeners this week?
2: My recommendation is to find things that you love in your life and bring them into your teaching in some way. Um, and there's two examples from this podcast that I, I just realized. Um, one of them is that Beltline Trail that I was talking about. Um, that, that trail, the part of it that's been restored in Atlanta, is part of my daily commute. So I bike to work every day on it. And it was biking to work on that trail that really got me thinking, I have, my students could be out here working and thinking about this huge ecological restoration project that has gone on over the last two years on this trail. So there's one. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is we opened today by thinking about chili peppers, which is what I turned all my students into during (laughs) that in-class exercise video at the beginning of our talk. Um, And one thing that I've been able to do this year is to put in my first real garden, my first real in-the-ground garden, um, where I planted chilies, among other things, and got to to practice my applied ecology, as it were, by being an urban gardener in the middle of the city. Um, and that's been really fun, too. So bringing those ideas from the garden into my ecology class and from the trail into my ecology class has really motivated me to uh, have more fun in class this semester.
0: Oh, I absolutely love it. And I, I love your inspiration to find things that we love and, and bring them in the classroom, because the students can see the passion in us And that can be infectious too. What a wonderful example. Thank you so much. And thanks for joining us on the show too. It was really a pleasure to have you as a
2: guest. Oh, it has been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you have any feedback for future shows or guests, go to teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. If you'd like to subscribe to our weekly update that gets in your inbox every week, the great show notes with all the links to what guests like Chrissy recommend to us. That's at teachinginhieredcom slash subscribe. And we would love to have you give any kind of a review or rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the show. It just helps other people be able to discover it and also helps to build the Teaching in Higher Ed community. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.